If you look at a picture here, it's something that I found a couple of weeks ago, and I went ahead and I narrated it. I narrate for a podcast for this seminary called the Man of God Network, and this document, this book came out in 1830, and what's interesting about it is it was a collection of particular Baptist pastors who got together in England and put this together, and it's called Hints to Parents on Seeking the Conversion of Their Children, the circular letter, it went in between them, circular letter from the ministers and messengers. Quote, a pious parent must often feel very great distress when he looks upon his children who are in an unconverted state. If he is favored with great spiritual enjoyments, how natural is it for him to wish that his offspring, his children, felt the same way? And how painful to think that neither know nor desire them. The children don't desire what the daddy desires. They want the kids to be saved. They want the kids to feel the change of heart he has experienced as a Christian. He yearns for his kids. And it says, when they, the kids, leave home, how many fears and forebodings will be occasioned by their removal if they are destitute of piety, if they're not Christians? Should any contagious disease rage around him or them and thin the families of his neighbors, he will be distressingly alarmed lest it should seize on his unconverted children and hurry them into eternity totally unprepared to meet their God. If they should be cut off in the midst of their sins, if you were cut off in the midst of your sins, your sufferings must be great and long. How dreadful to think that those whom he so tenderly loved have perished in an eternal misery. What horror will the parent feel, dad feel, when he sees his cause, when he sees cause to fear that their departed spirits are tormented in eternal flames and must be finally condemned at the day of judgment. Such thoughts will haunt him like a specter, like a ghost. It will follow him wherever he goes, will hold him waking at the midnight hour, will produce distress too great for utterance and be 10,000 times worse than the most painful death he could have suffered. And if he be taken from them, child, the thought of their guilt and danger will disturb his mind at his departing, dad's departing, hour and rendered dying work hard in quote. Archibald Alexander, this is chapter two. This is what we're going to be studying. Class two, chapter two, conversion and piety in children. The conversion of children. Quote, and this is so informative that if I feel the need to stop and explain things further, I will because it's worth getting this into our hearts. They don't write like this anymore. Many believe that infants are naturally free from moral pollution and therefore they don't need to be born again. But this opinion is diametrically opposite to the doctrine of Scripture and inconsistent with the acknowledged fact that as soon as children are capable of moral action, they all go astray and sin against God. If children were not depraved, they would be naturally inclined to love God and delight in his holy law. But the very reverse is true. There is no ground for those who are still in 
penitent to comfort themselves with the notion that they were regenerated in early childhood. For piety in a child will be as manifest as in an adult, and in some respects more so because there are so few young children who are pious, and because they have more simplicity of character and are much less liable. Children are less liable to play the hypocrite than people of mature age. Mere decency of external behavior with a freedom from gross sins is no evidence of regeneration. For these things may be found in many whose spirit is proud and self-righteous and entirely opposite to the religion of Christ. And we know that outwardly, outward regularity and sobriety may be produced by the restraints of a religious education, a good example, where there are found none of the internal characteristics of genuine piety. We ought not to expect from a regenerated child, child is born again at a young age, and you're comparing them to an adult, been born again, he won't have the same uniform attention to serious subjects or a freedom from that gaiety and volatility which are characteristic of that tender age. But we should expect to find the natural propensity moderated. In other words, we will see somewhat of a subtle change, an undeniable change that has happened in a child who has been born again. And their temper softened and seasoned by the commingling of pious thoughts and affections with those which naturally flow from the young child mind. When such children are called in providence to leave the world, they die at a young age. They come, Commonly their piety breaks out into a flame. In other words, they've been born again and they're about to die and meet Jesus and their Christianity flows out in a flame. And these young saints under the influence of divine grace are enabled so to speak of their love to Christ and confidence in him. A child can speak of their love to Christ and that they have confidence in him to the astonishment which puts to shame aged Christians. Well, this is what's so interesting about this, and this is the dilemma that I want to establish that happened. This was written about 1841. This was a man who, for 20 years, was a pastor before he became the first professor of Princeton Theological Seminary in 1812. And what I want to establish that's so interesting in history is something happened in the view of this man, and he was a pedo-baptist. Something happened between his generation and the immediate generation afterwards and how they viewed covenant children. He believed in covenant children, but there is an emphasis is here in his writing that covenant children are still depraved. They manifested in the family devotions. They manifested in the disinterested they have to the family devotions. They must be born again. But by the next generation, and this is what we're going to get into, is that Pado-Baptists started to change and believe in a doctrine called presumptive regeneration because of their being baptized and because, as they say, the promises to Abraham and his seed. And instead of looking for a conversion or an experience in the heart of a child, the assumption was that the child was already born again, and we will assume he is born again until he gives clear evidences to the contrary. 
So the way I'm going to prove this, there was in the Great Awakening, in the ministry of Jonathan Edwards, so he wasn't the one that counseled this four-year-old girl. There was a four-year-old girl named Phoebe Bartlett. She was four, and she came under awakening. She came under conviction that she needed to be saved, and she, four years old, was afraid of going to hell. And her mother well, let me just tell you the story and then look at how Jonathan Edwards and Archibald Alexander assessed that situation compared to Pedobaptists in our day. And it begins to be very, very interesting. The story of Fee Bartlett, she was four. I now proceed, says Jonathan Edwards, to another example, that of a little child before mentioned. Her name is Phoebe Bartlett. She was living in March of 1789 and maintained the character of a true convert, daughter of William Bartlett. So she was living in March 1789. Uh, this is a report of somebody else who could report on this four-year-old girl long after Jonathan Edwards had died. That even at the year 1789, Jonathan Edwards died in 1758, that this girl who was converted for still gave evidence of having genuine piety that much later in her life. I shall give the account as I took it from the mouth of her parents, whose veracity, their truth-telling, none who know them would doubt of. She was born in March of 1731. About the latter end of April or beginning of May 1735, she was greatly affected by the talk of her brother, who had been hopefully converted a little bit before this. At about 11 years of age, and then seriously, he, her brother was 11, and he seriously talked to her, the four-year-old, about the great things of religion. Her parents did not know of it. They didn't know this was going on at the time and were not want, they were not liable to, in the counsels they gave to their children, particularly to direct themselves to the counsels of her, she being so young. So their assumption is she's four years old. How much of this is she going to retain? How much of this is she going to come under the conviction of? And the amazing thing is she did come under the conviction of the testimony of her brother. He had a genuine conversion at four years of age. And this is what it says, that they did not particularly, mom and dad, direct themselves to her being so young. And as they suppose not Capable, she wasn't capable of understanding at four years old. But after her brother had talked to her, they observed her, the four-year-old, very earnestly listened to the advice that mom and dad gave to the other children. And she was observed very constantly to retire, go to her room to get alone. Several times in a day as was concluded for secret prayer four years old. She's now engaging in secret prayer. She grew more and more engaged in religion and was more frequent in her prayer closet. Till at last, as she was like to do or want to do, to visit it five or six times a day, a four-year-old, and was so engaged in it that nothing would at any time divert her from her stated closet exercises. Her mother often observed and watched her when such things occurred as she thought most likely to divert her, get her attention away from this either by putting it out of her thoughts or otherwise engaging her inclinations. But never could her mom observe her to fail. 
to go to her prayer closet. She mentioned some very remarkable instances. She once, of her own accord, spoke of her unsuccessfulness and that she could not find God to that purpose. But on Thursday, the last day of July, about the middle of the day, the child being in the prayer closet where it used to retire, its mother heard it speaking aloud, which was unusual and never had been observed before. And her voice seemed to be as one of exceedingly importunate, importunate, defectual, fervent prayer of her importunate is what that means. Her mother could distinctly hear only these words spoken in a childish manner, but with extraordinary earnestness and out of distress of soul pray, blessed Lord, give me salvation for your soul. I pray, beg, pardon all of my sins. When the child had done praying, she came out of the closet and sat down by her mother and cried out aloud. Her mother very earnestly asked her several times, what is the matter? Before she would make any answer, but she continued crying and writhing her body to and fro. Like one in anguish of spirit, her mother then asked her whether she was afraid that God would not give her salvation. She then answered, yes, I'm afraid I should go to hell. Her mother then endeavored to quiet her and told her she would not have her cry. She must be a good girl and pray every day, and she hoped that God would give her salvation. But this did not quiet her at all. She continued thus earnestly crying and taking on for some time till at length she suddenly ceased crying and began to smile and presently said with a smiling countenance, Mother, the kingdom of heaven has come to me. Her mother was surprised at the sudden alteration and at the speech and knew not what to make of it, but at first said nothing to her. The child presently spake again and said, There is another come to me, and there is another. There is three. And being asked what she meant, she answered, One is thy will be done, and there is another. Enjoy him forever. By which it seems that, no, where have you heard it? Enjoy him forever, and thy kingdom come. The memorization of the shorter catechism, God was bringing back to this four-year-old's misery. Um, four-year-old uh, mm-hmm. child in mercy to her quieting her convictions and to give her salvation. They were being brought back to her mind. There are three that has come to me. She meant three passages of her catechism that came to her mind. After the child had said this, she retired again to her closet. And her mother went over to her brothers, who was next door to neighbors. And when she came back, the child being come out of the closet meets her mother with this cheerful speech. I can find God now. Referring to what she before complained of, that she could not find God. Then the child spoke again and said, I love God. Her mother asked her how well she loved God, whether she loved God better than her father and mother. And she said, yes. Okay, let that grip you. That is what, when in the study a little later, we're going to call that a crisis experience. Really, it's a law work. It's an awakening in addition and conversion. You have to keep that in mind because this is the doctrinal experience that the later paedobaptists found to be a problem to their covenant nurturing model. In other words, the children have become covenant children 
we're going to use a covenant nurturing model to rear them up. So if they have this crisis experience like that, that kind of rattles the cage. Because in the covenant nurturing model, the child really should not know of the day they were converted because it was assumed they were all along. And I'm going to prove this is where they have come. And the man's name is R. Scott Clark. And he taught at Westminster Seminary. And he has a blog called the Heidel Blog. And this is what he said about what he calls the disturbing narrative of Phoebe Bartlett. Quote, historically, Reformed Christians have thought less in terms of religious crises. In other words, we discount that. Especially of convulsions of the sort ascribed by Jonathan Edwards of little Phoebe Bartlett. Rather, we've tended to think in terms of covenant nurture. We neither assume nor presume that our children are necessarily converted, but neither do we look for the sort of agony experienced by Phoebe? We're not looking for that. Well, what if God brings it to them? But if God brings a four-year-old to that kind of conviction, you may discount this crisis experience, but God can awaken a four-year-old child and they can have an experience like that and they can know the joy of having that fears alleviated in her case by Three questions from the catechism coming back to their memory. He says, though, we initiate our covenant children into the visible covenant community through the new covenant sign and seal of initiation, infant baptism. We instruct them, we include them in our public worship services as members of the visible covenant community, and we pray that the Spirit will do His mysterious work, John. Three. That's what we're looking at, the Heidelblog. This is his post. The emphasis in historic reform piety is on the ordinary, the ordinary. We don't like this stuff that's extraordinary. In other words, the ordained and even the usual. God usually works secretly, but no less supernaturally. It's disturbing their narrative that these kids would have this type of a conversion experience. That's why. And it started to happen, which I'm about to prove, in the next generation after Archibald Alexander, that these kind of conversions in children upset the apple cart and they they didn't want, that's why they were discounting what was going on in the Second Great Awakening. Archibald Alexander, on the other hand, was a pastor who ministered during the Great Awakening and he saw these conversions, but by the next generation, they were poo-pooing all of this. They wanted to keep these things quiet because the normal model to them is that a child won't know the day of their conversion. So the crisis experience conversion uh, becomes a threat to the covenant nurturing model that they're trying to employ. Well, my first question and your question should be, but what about us? We weren't raised in a covenant nurturing model. God took us from people around us and said, live. And we went through a tough time before we had assurance in Christ. We didn't have the enjoyment of a covenant nurturing model. This don't say a lot to us. Now, this is what's so it's provocative. Had I or Scott Clark, been Phoebe Bartlett's pastor, that was Jonathan Edwards, I would have encouraged her to trust the objective gospel promises made to Abraham and ratified in Christ's blood and signified by her baptism, pointing her back to her infant baptism. I would have discouraged a sort of fear and uncertainty to which Phoebe was led. I would discourage that. That type of awakening, I wouldn't look for that. I would discourage, oh, you have no right to be afraid that you're under the wrath of God. Quote, so this is going all the way back 
back to 1997 and it was really the first year that I had full internet and I was part of a group called the Reformed Baptist Discussion Group. And this guy wrote this paper and it was, he was in college at uh, Covenant College in St. Louis. And um, he wrote this paper as a refutation of Mark Welty, who was a believer's Baptist. And this shows just an idea how far this, and this guy signed what was called the Auburn theology document, the Federal Vision. In other words, so he was in the same camp as Doug Wilson and some of these people. They're really, really now sacramentalism, sacramentalism is being stressed and not this type of conversion. But let me, let me just read him so that you get an idea how irritating this can be. Mr. Welty insists, the guy that he's answering, that this passage, Colossians 2, 11 and 12, is speaking of believers. He is right. Too bad that Welty insists that babies are unbelievers. Are you saying that God won't hear the prayers of my four-year-old covenant child? Baptists rightly respond that God will always hear a prayer for conversion from anyone, young or old. But since baptisms, Baptists cannot possibly be that shallow, they surely have a better answer than that. What about when the child is three and a half? Does he get to sing, Jesus loves me? Surely Mr. Welty, and by comparison, us, this is who he's aiming at, surely we have heard some real emotional responses from Pado-Baptists. Why is he pitching softballs to himself? Let someone else step up to the mound and I would be more impressed. Now this is what he says. And as far as I can tell, unless I can justifiably regard my child as a Christian, I have no basis for the fellowship which the Bible commands parents to have with their children. If I were to adopt Mr. Welty's standpoint, I don't know what I would consistently do, but beat the snot out of my children until they are converted. I mean, that's just vile. And gave me some other basis for asking for their obedience. So he's not just engaged in polemics. I mean, this guy is just downright mean, you know. Now, later on, to his credit, he saw that he was pretty nasty when he wrote this. He was in college and so on. But they get so angry with us because we believe in historic experimental theology and what we have witnessed in testimonies and revivals. He's mad at us for this. He'd rather give him a false hope. Finally, if I have raised my child as a Christian, what right do I have to demand a prayer of conversion? I'm going to ask the child to pray for conversion. I mean, assume he already is. Do I presume that my four-year-old is trusting in his own good works to save him and must repent of legalism? Do I presume he is a hypocrite living in sin? Do I presume he is lying when he claims to love and trust Jesus as I have taught him to do so? So conversion is just the covenant father, I mean the father of the covenant child, just teaching him. This demand for some sort of conversion experience needs to be seen for what it is, a requirement of good works over and above simple childlike faith and or a satanic accusation burdening the consciences of our little brothers and sisters and the Lord. And I say in response, it's devil in the details of what these people are doing. Baptized infants who cannot demonstrate faith as it is legitimately expected of older Christians are believers. Simply being baptized counts as a credible confession 
The children of baptized believers possess a right to membership in the covenant, then their parents are under obligation to offer them to be baptized into the church. Covenant children. They are gods by right, like the tithe, because he demands that they be brought to him. When Jesus says, bring the little children to me, it's a command, and therefore they're gods by right, just like the tithe. So we're supposed to assume because Jesus said, bring the children to me, they were converted in that. All covenant keepers are to be considered regenerate, not presumed, which implies an unwarranted assumption, but considered, reckoned, regarded, and are treated as born again. Why? because they were baptized as children. All covenant keepers are given the Holy Spirit. They may have been regenerated before they entered covenant. Infants, perhaps, and adults converted from unbelief, almost certainly, or at their baptism, baptism infants, perhaps. So parents of baptized babies can be assured of the eternal salvation of their infants, and and should they have an untimely death befall them. They do not need to be told that if your infant was elect, then he is in heaven. That tautology is a useless torment from Satan. My response is, we just don't have enough light in in the judgment of charity and with a father's heart and as a loving Christian. I hope that children dying in infancy go to heaven. But we just don't have enough light, and we certainly don't have enough light to assume that because they were baptized in children, they're all automatically going to heaven. One more paragraph. Baptized children are just as much Christians as their parents are. Both are in covenant with Christ, and both must endure to the end to be saved. God is equally to God of parents and their children. So I'm comparing this with what Archibald Alexander said uh, in the book Thoughts on Religious Experience. Many children, and especially those who have pious parents who speak to them of the importance of salvation, are the subjects of occasional religious impressions of different kinds. Sometimes they are alarmed by hearing an awakening sermon or by the sudden death of a companion of their own age, or again, they are tenderly affected even to tears from a consideration of the goodness and forbearance of God. These impressions can come upon unconverted children. There are also seasons of transporting joy which some experience, especially after being tenderly affected with a sense of ingratitude to God for his wonderful goodness and sparing them and bestowing so many blessings upon them. These transient emotions, transient, they come and they go. They're transient. These transient emotions of joy cannot always be easily accounted for, but they are commonly preceded or accompanied by a hope or persuasion that God is reconciled and will receive them. In some cases, it would be thought that these juvenile exercises were indications of a change of heart. It would indicate that, but this is a qualifier. Did they not pass away like the morning cloud or early dew, so as even to be obliterated from the mind which experienced them? So I'm going to do a contrast before we get to the application, but after this, you know, we're going to open it up for discussion. I'm going to contrast with him him with Charles Hodge, who was a professor of theology at Princeton just one generation later, to show you how much this idea changed of children and conversion. Quote, nurture, nurture, covenant nurture, served as the foundation for all of Hodge's religious experience. In fact, it provided the context that gave meaning to all stages in his life, his infancy, early childhood, adolescence, and adulthood. Nurture functioned as the epistemological grid 
through which Hodge interpreted all his experience. The purpose of catechism and the crisis nurture model changed significantly, however, with the arrival of the second great awakening. So Hodge became concerned, rightly so, because of what he saw that were called conversions under the aberrations of the Second Great Awakening under Charles Finney. But I believe that he overreacted and therefore they stressed the presumptive regeneration and the covenant nurturing model as the foundation of conversion in children. The revivalism led to still another call, another radical change in piety that rankled it. It made Charles Hodge mad. The decline, and this is why he was mad. This is why he's mad is he's looking at the records of what happened in the Second Great Awakening. This is what rankled it. That the recorded number of infant baptisms had decreased. Hodge used a notice of George Armstrong's work on baptism as a pretext for an extended article in 1857 on the neglect of household baptism in a Presbyterian church. The sharp decline of paedo-baptism in practice, the causes for this neglect and how the trend could be reversed, he was concerned. In our covenant nurturing model, if infant baptism is going down, then these children are not going to be converted. I think that's how off the mark within one generation they were becoming. He contended that the old common doctrine declared children church members upon their baptism is infants. It rested on the minor premise and the following syllogism. Members of the church are the proper subjects of discipline. All baptized persons are members of the church. Therefore, all baptized persons are the proper subjects of discipline. In other words, these children should not only become members and assume membership, but if they act up, the church should discipline. So before I get into Pastor Martin and how to counsel spiritually awakened children, what kind of thoughts go through your mind, Michael, as you hear this? Um, okay, so what influence did the Pedo-Baptist view of raising children have on Baptists? Did it have an influence, or have Baptists been able to preserve a proper view of that? Oh, I'll tell you what, that's such an excellent question, because we do not reject at all the covenant, not the covenant, the nurturing model of parents and raising our kids. We do everything that the Pedo-Baptist does. We catechize our kids. We pray for our kids. We expose them to the scripture. We use the means of grace in their life. We agree with them in the nurturing model. As parents, we must nurture our children as a means to the end. And commonly, in a Christian home, and you're raising Baptist children, still God uses these means in their conversion, and they may not know the day that they are converted. And we're not rejecting that at all. What we are guarding against is the idea that because these children were baptized into a covenant family, we're going to assume that they're Christians. And Archibald Alexander says at the beginning of this, no, we're going to assume that they are not children, uh, Christian children. And there are those pedo-baptists who would reject what this man is saying. Yeah, yeah, that's funny. John Gershon would absolutely uh, reject everything he said. Uh, it's funny, I just got to give you a little uh, example of that, because John Gershon was such a Jonathan Edwards expert. And he was talking about these baptized children and these covenant families, and he called them vipers and covenantal diapers. Because right. Edwards had such a different, you know, children come into the world. As when he was talking about his wife, Sarah Edwards, Sarah Edwards see, saw her children coming into the world in a, quote, infinitely dreadful condition. 
So she began to pray for those children before they were born. Right. Something happened in that nurturing model of somebody like a Sarah Edwards. And it would just it would just be good counsel to those who are convinced of the uh, covenant, the Presbyterian covenant theology, to probably try to press into some of those better, more conservative teachers like John Gershon, I'm sure Joe Behe, people like that. Um, well, and what's happening though, and these people like R. Scott Clark. Believe me, this is going on in the Protestant Reformed Churches up in Grand Rapids. The people that are getting thrown under the bus, the people that are the target of their attacks now have to be people like Jonathan Edwards. So they try to really, because of the view of the... And, and it wasn't universal among all the Puritans. I mean, there were Puritans like Cornelius Burgess that went way too far in what he mm -hmm. uh, thought were the results of these children being born into the quote Abrahamic covenant. But as a whole, the you know, you take a book like A Token for Children by James Janeway, who probably died at the age of 36. There were so, so many testimonies of children having these kinds of conversions. And A Token for Children, at one time, and it's a book about a number of children's conversion experiences. And these children, at a very young age, passed away, but they uh, went on their deathbed and into heaven with just joy and because they gave obvious manifestation that they were believers. Now, that book, keep this in the back of your mind, Jason, next to Pilgrim's Progress in the 17th century, the most popular children's book was A Token for Children by James Janeway. And believe me, some of these men would have problem with his emphasis on these people being converted. Something happened since. You know. and, and I've just heard so many times, well, that's just because they're young. Well, well, yeah, and that quote you were reading from, it was explaining how there's, um, you you won't expect, you shouldn't expect the same level of interest yeah, yeah, in, in, exactly in uh, right. serious yeah. subjects in general, but there will be a, a pretty An constant inclination. One that's not life. like a phase, yeah. but yeah. A, a general inclination to spiritual things while also manifesting what would naturally be, you know, enjoyable from, from to a kid. Uh, I'm interested to hear what you want to say, Sarah. Um, I think it's kind of a question and comment mixed together. Uh, when, um, where, what do we believe concerning if a child that's younger than four dies? Are they going to heaven? Do they? Are they? In a judgment of charity, that's all I'm saying is. You know, that's what I'm hoping, and good men have thought this much. I don't have enough light to really say. I, all I can fall back on is that out of all the earth will do right. I just don't, you know. <clears throat> but I, at the same time, the other extreme is to tell everybody that had a child that was baptized into a Pentecostal covenant child relationship that they went to heaven as a result of that baptism. That, that scares me. It really does. It scares me. Yeah, I agree there. I don't believe that a um, child baptism, uh, getting baptized into their parents' covenant is going to save them, but um, I just have always heard that yeah. if, they're, if they're too young to be converted, that they would go back. There's, um, I don't remember his name now, but there was a guy that used to visit our church like once a year, and he's, um, he's like written books and stuff. Anyway, he wrote an article about this, and he's like very convinced the Bible teaches that infants would go to heaven. Like, it was kind of interesting. So I think that 
They're probably I think that may be the view of Dr. Kirk Daniel. Yeah, but there was another guy, Robert Webb, and he taught at a seminary in Louisville and he wrote a book on this subject. But, you know, I, I look at passages for bringing forth and I'm saying, I can't say for sure that that's really what they're saying. I, you know, uh, David, what do you think about the scripture that a lot of people use, which is King David saying, you yeah, know, right. I can't go... Right. Well, as some people have said, you know, is that really saying that David believed that his child is in heaven? There's just not enough information there. Yeah. I shall go to him. He was talking about going to the the grave itself. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's what I've heard is it could be that. But it would be an interesting thing to read because I think he, he wrote a lot and researched a lot to write that. I think there are different perspectives within our group, but I think typically they would say they do go to heaven. I think one, that's the, the, the typical view. One thing I like that I've heard, heard is is this, and actually it was from a more, which if, if IFB movement ever produced a good preacher, I think it would be Lester Roloff. Yeah. Um, yeah. And he said, he said this, he his, his statement was, if a infant or a, uh, a young child does go to heaven, it's by the same way everyone else goes to heaven, yeah. and that's through regeneration and through... The work of God and well, through the blood of Christ. What's interesting about how Archibald Alexander opens up this whole chapter, and I didn't read it because there's a lot of conjecture, and it could be a whole another study. Is that if it's true that uh, Jeremiah, you know, uh, knew the Lord very, very early on, and John the Baptist from right. his mother's womb, and that yeah. he said it's entirely probable since a child must be regenerated before they can believe on Christ that God is able to do this at a very, very young age. Who's to say that he can't? And that is comforting. We don't know that mystery, but that's just what we hope for. But I'm going to be interested in you guys' questions on the next part. And it's not going to be very long, but I think that this is really, really uh, important. And um, that's why I think it's worthwhile going through this. But so how do we counsel our spiritually awakened children? What is a spiritually awakened child? And Albert Martin says an indigenous, internal, pre occupation, anxiety about the state of their soul, they're awakened. They're asking mom and dad, dad, look, I'm, I'm, I'm a little scared. I don't, what must I do to be saved? As a parent, how do you address that? You tell them, give them the gospel. And we yeah, tell them well, to repent and, and that's part of his counsel. But what do we look for as an evidence that maybe a child has passed from death? Unto life. So, what are our two greatest fears? There's two fears. Let's see if you guys could come up with them. You're a parent, a child is coming to you, awaken, and there's two extremes that you want to avoid when you're counseling your children. Can you think of what those might be? One on the one hand and one on the other. Assuming that they're lost or assuming that they're saved? And not we don't want to introduce into their mind a false hope or a presumption that they're saved when they're not that's one but on the other extreme we want to keep them from a climate of discouragement and despair we don't want to make the way look so strict and narrow that a child can never enter into it you don't want to quench the smoking plaques or, or break the brood. Yeah. When giving counsel to our spiritually awakened children, what should be in the thinking and mindset of parents and their counsel? One, they're in a covenant, uh, not a covenant, nurturing model, even in a Baptist family, a nurturing model. We don't say they're in a covenant. The precise 
time when the Christian nurturing results in conversion in our household often is unknown to the child or the parent. We don't try to get her to, do you remember when you were converted? Do you remember that time? It may not be there, not if they were raised in a Christian home. Parents must cautiously and hopefully and prayerfully, he says, wait, wait for the evidences of an emergence, the beginning of a fixed disposition. The disposition has changed to spiritual things. It's fixed now. It's not vacillating. There's something new within, and it will begin to manifest itself in the child of Christian graces and commitment. But what we got to get away from, we so badly want to know that our children are converted. We got to be very, very careful because they get older in life. I, I saw this in one of my sons, not Michael, but. There seemed to be a time of awakening. And then you get to that place where the hormones are raging and to get what you want, you throw everything you've been taught, throw it aside and you show that though you were awakened before, though you were alerted and alarmed, it doesn't give evidence that any real foundation was laid and that person was born again. But as parents, that's why we must have a sanctified, cautious, restraint on the natural desire to know that our children are safe and converted. We got to be very, very careful. God must work in us a patience in this regard. Otherwise, we could encourage our children in a false hope. And so I went back to Archibald Alexander where he was saying, you know, well, what would that evidence look like? And he says, suppose then that in a Christian in a certain case, grace has been communicated at so early a period that its first exercises cannot be remembered. I don't remember. Mom, when I was converted, all I know is I, I want Christ above everything. So what, as a parent, what will be the evidence which we should expect to find in its existence? Surely we ought not to look for wisdom, judgment, and the stability of adult years even in a pious child, we should expect, if I may say, a childish piety, a simple, devout, and tender state of heart. As soon as such a child should obtain the first ideas of God as its creator, preserver, and benefactor, and of Christ as its savior, who shed his blood and laid down his life for us on the cross, it would be piously affected with these truths if he's born again. And we give manifest proof that it possessed a susceptibility of emotions and affections of the heart corresponding with the conceptions of truth, which at that age it was capable of taking in, of comprehending, of grasping. Such a child would be still liable to sin, as all Christians are, but when they become sensible of their faults, it would manifest tenderness of conscience and genuine sorrow and would be fearful of sinning afterwards. When taught, when the child is taught that prayer was both a duty and a privilege, it would take pleasure in drawing near to God. We ought not to expect from a born-again child uniform attention to serious subjects or a freedom. They're not totally free from that gaiety and volatility which are characteristic of that tender age, but we should expect to find the natural propensity moderated and the temper softened and seasoned by the commingling of pious thoughts and affections with those which naturally flow from the child's mind. In short, the exercises of grace are the same in a child as in an adult, only modified by the peculiarities and the character and knowledge of a child. 
Do not be discouraged on, it, on this account. Rather be thankful that you have been so early placed. He says, well, I don't know the day of my conversion. I don't know when this happened. I don't know when it commenced. And Alexander is saying to the child, well, don't be discouraged on this account. But rather be thankful that you have been so early placed under the tender care of the great shepherd and have thus been restrained from committing many sins to which your nature as well as that of others was inclined. The habitual evidences of piety are the same at whatever period the work began. If you possess these marks, you are safe. And to end with a sentence by Albert Martin, God, it's parents, God must work in us a patience in this regard. A restraint on the natural desire to know our children are safe and converted. We, because on the one hand, we don't want them to have a false comfort. At the same time, we don't want them to despair. We got to be patient. We got to be hopeful. We got to be prayerful. But when we see the things germinating, when we see the obvious fruits of what mark a state of disposition that has been changed, it continues in its perseverance. That's what gives us real hope. Look, something really happened. I see something in this child that evidences that this wasn't a crisis experience moment. It wasn't a decision that he made at one time with no ongoing results, but you begin to see the disposition because he's been born again. God it has begun to work. Even in the child, we'll perform it until the day of Christ Jesus. As a parent, when we see that, we can be encouraged. And it's interesting that Pastor Martin was very, very cautious. He says, sometimes we wait until post puberty when these convictions and the supposed changes happen to see how does it manifest itself when he's among his former friends who try to get him to turn aside or is in the workplace where he knows he's going to be unpopular if he doesn't toe the line of the people around him who have no love for God, no sincerity, and he marks by his conduct around those people, look, I can't go along with you. My heart has been changed. That person is definitely should be encouraged to be baptized and join the church, you know, after a while. But the application I want to take from this, and maybe there's people, if they were sitting here, wouldn't find this very popular with them, is we have to be careful because we hear these testimonies in our church and these young people are coming in. And I am afraid the parents have a tendency to bring them on in because of a, quote, crisis experience in the past or a decision they made in the past, even though they don't have continued fruit and results. And then what happens? And we're praying for an apostate child that has left the church and has turned his back on all this because the change was only superficial. It didn't manifest itself in a life of perseverance. Go ahead, Michael. <clears throat> um. Okay, so they, they, um, he said you shouldn't expect the same level of attention as you would an adult in a child during uh, probably sermons, devotional things, right? What um, Some degree. Yeah, some degree, though, I suppose. It would be some interest. Right? Yeah, yeah. So we're talking about the difference in degree or the difference in kind. Yeah. We'll see a difference in right. the fruit. Go ahead, Jason. You were going to say something? Uh, no, I'm just listening. I am. David? Um, well, yeah, I think there will be a degree as opposed to, I'm just kind of going off answering this question. I think there will be a degree as opposed to a, as opposed in the other lost child, almost a degree of hostility, uh, yeah, a degree yeah. of resentment, a degree of absolute or just 
no interest whatsoever. Yeah. You know, yeah. I think you'll see that manifest, and I've seen this in my own children's life. Um, but I did want to speak to the the topic you you were talking to. Um, one of the questions you posed earlier is number one: How do we not go into the extreme? of assuring our kids of of a salvation or of, of, of a false hope that they might hold on maybe like you said it was maybe a time of awakening yep. or a time of, of conviction but then they you know how do we assure them how do we not just uh encourage them in this false hope and i believe that's this we call it childhood conversion and adulthood conversion but really conversion is conversion it's not different in a child than it is an adult. God gives that person a new heart. They repent. They believe. They trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they're made a new creature in Christ. So I believe one of the ways that we keep our children it from, from false conversions and false hopes is to teach them the doctrine of perseverance, to give them the admonishments of the Scriptures, um, you know, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, or give diligence to make your calling and election sure. My son professes, and I believe he shows a lot of encouragements. But I always tell him, I said, this is not, you know, this is not something that was a one-time prayer thing, something you did in your closet. This is something that you will see manifest for the rest of your life. And if you see something that doesn't hold you in through your teenage years, doesn't hold you into adulthood, and doesn't hold you in as an old man, then you don't have a reason to hope. You, yeah. have a, you have a reason to doubt yeah. at that point. But it doesn't necessarily mean, even if they, for sure. a time, it doesn't mean that something didn't happen That's prior true. to that. Sure. But yeah. but they can't have any assurance but that they, they did well. They yeah. have no reason to hope. Well, it's interesting, that. and let me let me mention the series. Uh, SG-audiotreasures.org, if you click on Albert Martin and you click on the series that he has done is called Dealing with Your Spiritually Awakened Children and number four, they're taking questions from the audience and the question is, well, so what do I do? Um, my child made a decision and you know we were really hopeful and uh, I wanted to give them encouragement and I said, oh, I really believe you're converted and then they fell away from that and now uh, they still have a profession. What does mom and dad do? Uh, to correct this and Pastor Martin says well first of all it depends on the age of a child if they're three to five or something like that it's going to be very easy to correct in your devotionals you just uh, put this in a different direction but if they have made a profession and so on and you don't see the fruit of it you may have to uh, just sit down with uh, Johnny or Susan and say you know mom and dad I really believe that you were converted and we told you so because you made this profession, but we don't see the fruits of it. And yeah. Mom and dad were a little bit presumptuous. I just want you to know we, we're not God. We can't read your hearts and uh, we want to be very careful because we believe we've made a mistake here. Uh, the evidence that you are converted is that you continue to persevere and we're not, we're not seeing right. that in you. And that's the difference between our Reformed theology and independent Baptists or a lot of Armenian theology was just the doctrine of eternal security. Yeah. And that's where the danger in assuring your kid of a false hope and then having them trust on that is when you teach them a doctrine like the doctrine of eternal security. Yeah. Um, but so that's what I'm saying. What do you do? What do you do to assure an adult of their salvation and keep an adult from a false hope? You teach them the doctrine of perseverance. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the same thing with children. 
What do you do to keep them from a false hope? Teach, teach them the doctrine of perseverance. Well, you know, it's so interesting because adults and children, the council is going to be the same, but we only had one other class here, and I started with a quote by Jonathan Edwards. He was writing a letter to a pastor in Scotland named James Robe, and there was a great revival that happened in Scotland. And it was a couple of years after the Great Awakening, and Edwards is reflecting back on what happened, and in the judgment of charity, he thought that 300 people were converted in the first revival that came to Northampton, but so many people had apostatized, they had fallen away. And he said, uh, brother, if I had to do it over again, uh, I would have been a little bit more careful before I would have pronounced them converted. And I said, the safest way is we don't give anybody any kind of encouragement who is no longer persevering and pressing in. Yes, and." running the race and Edward's just he learned so much from his prior mistakes and that's why there's so much wisdom in his work called Thoughts on the Present Revival of Religious and a Religion and a Treatise on the Religious Affections because he said, Look, we had such hope for these people. They've apostatized, they've gone back to the world. If I had to do it over again I would have been a little bit more cautious in giving them some kind of a hope. We want to wait a little while, you know, months, maybe a year or whatever. And how are these people are doing? And in real genuine revival, and I saw this in the study of uh, Asa Hell Nettleton, that a lot of these people that made a profession in these revivals, it continued on. Yeah. Uh, but I'll tell you, there's really a caution there for parents that we really want to see the fruits of this um, we want to, you know, we don't want them to despair, but we don't want to give them a false hope. So it all comes down to that. Any closing remarks? I just want to say one thing. Um, there were many, like, times in my life that when I was a kid, I thought that I would become a Christian. But when I actually got saved, the real difference was um, one, of the, one of the main things was spiritual mindedness. You know, in the past, it was, I had a phase, you know, where, well, I, I probably should call up to God because I don't know if I'm saved and I don't want to go to hell. But nothing really ever changed, yeah. you know, in terms of my desires and interests and what I thought about. But when I became a Christian, it was, uh, it was like a whole different world, you know. Like it was a completely, I had, you know, a completely different life because everything I, the way I th thought about everything, the things I thought about, and the things I wanted were different, you know. Um, and I would suppose that if a if a kid has a new heart you will see some of that consistent inclination to spiritual things, even if it's not, even if it doesn't look exactly like it would in an adult, you know? I agree with Michael because I made a profession when I was a little girl and it, it did not have any fruit to it. It was to please my parents. Mm. And, um, but then as I grew older, I had no thoughts of following through with it. I was, I had a, a whole different track and then when I turned 17 and actually was truly converted, I mean, I was, it was like a stop in my tracks and, and literally a, having the courage to say, no, I'm not doing this. No, I can't go there. No, I can't be with you guys. I can't, because yeah. I was in, I was in a college by then. And so literally a week before, pure pressure and I was yeah. trying to, pushes far away from... What, what, what she's saying, though, I want to build on that because it's a reminder of something we've covered over and over again. She, we don't say, I can't do this and I can't do that because it's a legal manner, 
but as a means to the end, not cause and effect, because I can't do this because I'm trying to gain the smile of God. I already got the smile of God. I already am born again. I already am his child. I can't do these things because I know the effect that they have on me spiritually. If I engage in these things, it dampens my spiritual affections. It dampens my spiritual devotion. It cuts the throat of my private life, and that's why I can't do them. It isn't because this is a code of ethics. I shouldn't ever sit down with people and play a game of cards. You can or you can't, but if you know yourself and you know every time I sit down and I'm playing cards and I'm laughing and crazy with these people, I find it really dampening to my spiritual affections and my devotion. And I lack, I lack assurance and I can't immediately go into the presence of God in prayer because my conscience is bothering me. So it's a means to the end. And what happens in fundamentalism is there's such a focus on justification. If we say, I can't do this and I can't do that, they say, oh, that's legalism. No, I'm not doing these things because they dampen that spiritual vigor. And I want to have that inclination so that my prayers are fervent. My prayers are diligent because I have tasted this and I can't live without it. And these things, not doing those things, are just a means to the end. They are nothing more than that, but we use these means as a conduit to the end of persevering in the faith. Yeah. Yeah. And I definitely don't think, you know, with my experience that it's every child that that gets, uh, makes a profession young is not truly converted. Um, just for me, I noticed that as, because of the reason why it wasn't, it wasn't true, it, it had no root. It was just something, a facade to, to please my parents. Yeah, I just 